this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining at patreon.com forward slash dig me out. And Patreon is going to be important in this episode, Jay, because there are a lot of comments on this episode over at our Patreon page. Looking forward to getting into that. But first, we've got to welcome back a guest, Jay. Let's do it. Joining us for the first time in a year. Uh, what did we discuss one year ago, Mr. Patrick Testa? What was your pick last year? Uh, my pick last year was the worst sounding acoustic guitar recording in the history of the 1990s. James Laid. Oh, that's <laughs> that's right. An interesting episode with some poorly recorded acoustic guitar. <laughs> Right. So this time, you went a little bigger to the excitement and uh, bewilderment to, of some of our Patreon folks, which we'll get to. Tell everyone the album that you have selected for your 12-month anniversary pick and why you picked it. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for having me back. This is uh, awesome to talk about because not only is it a giant album and it kind of sounds like it may not belong on dig. I mean, why do we want to dig out a, a three times platinum record, you know, from a nineties album that actually might still be getting airplay here and there out there. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, I oh, assume yeah. it is. Um, but you know, that wasn't the reason I didn't want to, you know, de- derail any, anything about the the program, but I just, uh, thought it would be a great, first of all, I love great albums. So it was difficult to, for me to pull out some, uh, a, a rock album that I wanted to showcase that, that I think it was fantastic all the way through. So, you know, you go down the list of possibilities, but since I was, a childhood friend with Maynard in Ohio uh, when I was a kid and when he was a little bit older than a kid. Um, I thought I'd come on the show and talk about that and give you a little bit about a little insight about my experience, uh, share it with you guys and share it with the, with your audience. Well, cool. well, well. So the album is tool. Uh, the band is tool. The album is anima from 1996 Sold 100,000 records in the first week. Wow. That's unheard of now. Right. <laughs> that's true. And I did not know until we got to this week and I started listening to the record again that it, that was the pronunciation <laughs> for the album. I had been mispronouncing <laughs> it since 1996. Oh, me too. Well, if we get it wrong, you know, there will be some people out there correcting us. Don't worry about I, that. I was pronouncing it Ainema. <laughs> Ainema. Because there's an mm. A and an E mashed together in some weird uh, fashion. Right. And I did not and really. I just said anima. Yeah, <laughs> anima. Yeah, it's, well, it's not a, you know, it's a made up word, right? It's a combination of words. So, yes. I think, uh, and, you know, 
along with going along with what Tool does throughout their career, they they kind of uh, leave a lot of things up to interpretation. So who knows? So maybe tell, it is I eat them or whatever. Yeah, that's true. Um, so tell everyone. I mean, you mentioned about having the the personal relationship as far as growing up uh, in uh, that would be Northeast Ohio. Right. We, uh, I grew up in Northeast Ohio and, um, I was, uh, I actually have my relationship with, with Maynard actually, I know him as Jimmy, so I might say both, but, uh, my relationship with him was, uh, it's kind of like, um, looking back on it, it's kind of like relationship that someone might have or myself might have with Jesus, the character in the Bible. The New Testament, right? Because you know a lot about his early years, and then you know, with with Maynard, I I, I got to I know him as a as a young person, and uh, then he moved away to Michigan, and I never thought I'd ever hear from him again. And then I actually did in my thirties uh, get reconnected with him, so I got to see. You know, I saw a, kind of a very interesting uh, kid uh, that I knew had some specialties about him. I mean, it was it was obvious. So when I did get reconnected with him, it was like, holy smokes, this guy is extraordinary. And I really do believe that he's an extraordinary person. And I think their music is reflective of um, his high standards and um, the extraordinary aspects of his personality, really. So when you reconnected with him, was he in Tool and the band going at that point? Yeah, it was um, not until 2000. Okay. That, so it was not, the last I saw him uh, as a kid was 1977. And we were, uh, he was friends of our family. And actually my mom and his mom were, my mom actually helped with their family during the the, the years where his mom had um, health issues. Uh, she had uh, brain aneurysms and was paralyzed. And uh, so my mom would go over and help. Actually, she was in recovery, and my mom would help um, Judith with whatever she needed. And she would bring us over, my, my three siblings and me and... We would hang out with Jimmy, and um, she would do things with Judith, and she would take care take care of things that, around the house that you know Judith couldn't do, or she would take her to to classes and stuff. She was going to Kent State at the time, so it was um, you know normal experience where you know your mom drags you somewhere and you hang out with one of your friends, and you know it, it was so often that we felt like. I have a lot of cousins, so I just kind of, you know, I was young. I was, you know, he, I was probably five years younger than him, and my brother was the same age as he. So um, it was uh, just like that, you know, hang out with cousins, doing stuff, you know, right. playing in the basement and drawing. And I mean, some of the things that he did were, you know, stuck with me forever, actually. So it's really awesome that I got to reconnect with him, but um, really the impact he had on. Me as a kid, kind of, um, I felt that throughout the whole, you know, my whole life. So it's pretty cool. So if you reconnected with him in 2000, did you 
I know when Tool formed and or not formed when they put out their first EP, Opiate. Like, were you aware that he was in that band, or did you come to that separately? How did that happen? Let me just tell you. I guess I'll tell you the story of how we got reconnected because it was it, it was you know one of those experiences you don't forget. So I I was getting ready to. We were living in Columbus, my wife and I, and we were getting ready to drive up to our uh, my brother's house in Northeast Ohio and babysit his kids while they went on to. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think a NASCAR race actually, and uh, I got a phone call from a high school friend, Don. If you're listening, <laughs> Don calls me, and we, I've known Don whole life, and I but I hadn't heard from her, I hadn't talked to her in you know, since high school, so it was a good you know 15 years or so, and she just calls me and says, "Oh, I've been trying to get a hold of you. Uh, I finally got your number from your dad, and uh, I just wanted to ask you, do you remember Jimmy?" And I'm like, yeah, I remember Jimmy. And she's like, do you, do you, uh, do you ever talk to him? I'm like, no. And, you know, he moved away when I was seven. He was like 12 or 13. And uh, she's like, well, do you know the lead singer of A Perfect Circle? And I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, Maynard. He's the lead singer of Tool. He's the lead singer of Perfect Circle. Yeah, I know him. I mean, I don't know him. I, I know who he is. And she goes, I think you do. And I said, I don't, I didn't even know what that meant. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, uh, yeah, Jimmy is Maynard. And I'm like, what? So it was, it was mind blowing at the moment. And, uh, she said, well, he's, he wants to get in touch with your family. And, and, uh, so, um, can I give him your phone number? And I'm like, yeah, she gave me his email address and, uh, which is exactly what he asked to do. And I emailed him and, and uh, like four days later, I was at a perfect circle concert in Columbus. Um, I think it was that Monday or Sunday or something. So uh, uh, this actually, this part is, is, is great too, because we go to the show and uh, he left tickets for me at the, at the gate we go in, we get our seats, we're sitting down, we're watching a show, and somewhere between the, I don't know, between one of the songs, he spoke to the audience and says, there's um, somebody here, there's people here that I haven't seen in 20 years, and I'm going to see them tonight. And the whole crowd's going crazy, yeah! And I'm like, why is the crowd going crazy? <laughs> but it was, you know, he's talking about me, that's weird. So, you know, I got to meet him backstage and, and uh, then he asked about my mom and he asked about my brothers and sister. And then we got reconnected that way. So it was, you know, it was after a perfect circle um, after uh, formed um, tool, obviously had uh, they hadn't released uh, lateralis yet because then we went on a few dates of the lateralis tour and met up with him. But um yeah, so he was well established. So for me, it was a weird thing when I met him. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I remember you so well!" And I have these, you know, I have a real connection to some of the things that we experienced together as a kid. And then it was gone. You know, it was like one of those kids that moves away when you're in second grade and you never think you're going to see him again. You know, I have another one, John Pributo. If you're out there in <laughs> somewhere, he moved away in second grade. I've never. He was my best friend. You know. So, you know, I think everybody has somebody like that. And sure. so when you reconnect, that was that 
that was a real personal thing there. And then to find out it was somebody that you totally respected as a, you know, artist and a musician on top of that, it was kind of like a weird dynamic. It really didn't register on, on, um, like a fa- I didn't have like a, f- I, I couldn't really put my finger on how I felt. It was kind of like in between of like being proud of, you know, somebody that came from where I came from, you know, and, you know, a f- he really felt like a cousin when I was little. So it kind of felt like family a little bit, you know, but then also just like mesmerized by like how big somebody could be um that's a real human being you know (laughs) not not something you just read about in magazines or see on tv so were you a tool fan before that oh yeah i was i was i was a fan of i was a fan of metal i was a metal head in the 80s you know when i was i was very young and i do remember another great story when i was we were with Jimmy, uh, my brother. I remember uh, telling you know he's he, Jimmy was big into um, Kiss, and he would draw the Kiss faces, and he had, he had tons of drawings of them on, on stuck up on the wall and just laying around everywhere when we visited him. And I remember um, before we went to his house one time, I was talking to my older brother, and I'm like, yeah. I love Kiss, you know, and I didn't really even know who Kiss was, you know. And uh, Dean's like, my brother, like, uh, I don't really like Kiss. And I'm like, you don't like Kiss? Come on. So when we go to Jimmy's house, I mentioned that to him. I'm like, yeah, Dean doesn't like Kiss. And and Jimmy looks at me. He's like, it's okay that Dean doesn't like Kiss. We love Kiss, but he doesn't have to like him. You don't have to like anything if you don't want to. And so, you know, that kind of thing, you know, those little things stuck with me forever, you know. And uh, so I was I actually became a I wasn't actually I wasn't that big of a Kiss fan ever, but I was a a rock fan. And uh, when, you know, the grunge hit, it really I really resonated with me. So I was big into all the grunge acts and um, I got the single, not the single, but I guess it was a single was. Uh, the very first song from uh, Opiate, well, the song Opiate was on a compilation CD that I picked up at Singing Doll Records. And uh, so I really got into Tool on that first song. And then when, when uh, so I didn't get the, re- I didn't get the Opiate album until after I got, um, what was her second album? <laughs> after uh, Sober came out with uh, Undertow. Undertow? Yeah. Undertow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That was a kind of a big record. So, yeah. So I was a Tool fan all along. And then, you know, my sister was a huge Tool fan. And we used to, you know, all through the 90s, they were, they were the, they were the, you know, top five band of, of any, of any of us in my circle, you know. So it never occurred to you that this was somebody that you knew, like you'd, in his mannerisms or his way he looked, never no. made the connection on your own. Not at all. He, well, you know, he's brilliant at. Um, I wouldn't say disguises. He's brilliant at playing characters, you know, and he loved to mm. dress up. And also, they're not in their videos. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but even when we saw him, we I saw him at Lala or not Lollapalooza. Oh, yeah, it was Lollapalooza with Devo and and Tool. I think it was Lollapalooza tour. Um. 
around the time that this record came out, actually, like 96 or something like that. Um, I still, you know, I was up close, but he was covered in, in, he was painted half blue, half white. And, you know, we wore all kinds of crazy outfits. So, no, I never, never once. How how difficult was it to make, I guess, the um, the connection or resolve, like, the the person you knew connected to the person, the, the celebrity or whatever, the entity that you had to connect this with? Like, was there, like, some dissonance there of, like, how do I make these two things fit? Well, I mean, just in my own head, really. Yeah, I mean, when we when we talked, it was it was just like he, you know, he has he had an incredible way of reconnecting with little things. Uh, he did it with each one of us that saw him again, uh, my brothers and my mom, and uh, uh, you know, it's just like one line he would say to each of us, and it would be like, "Holy moly!" You know, it would just bring us right back to where we left off in 1977 you know and he remembered the house we were building and everything so it was it was really um he's you know like i said he's he's you know i don't know i don't know all of what he does in his life and he loves to say you know don't look at me to be a uh, role model you know that kind of thing he goes i don't have the answers i just have ideas you know those are some of his quotes but you know, he knew how to reconnect with us, and it was you know. And then we got to see his mom too before she passed. It was, it was very special, really. And so, but no, I um, actually I forgot what your actual question was, but I don't know if I covered it. Is that why he reached out because of his mom? He he said he told me that he uh, would post pictures of you know himself and his. Uh, in his uh, military outfits and things like that online, hopefully he would meet up with or some of his old buddies would would get in contact with him, and they never did. That's what he said. They never did. I couldn't get anybody, you know. But you know, he just he just wanted to reconnect. He was, you know, if you look at the record that we're gonna, you know, may talk about here today, it's really is about somebody you know trying to find their way inside their own head as to where they're going now, you know, what, where they're taking their life, you know, if, if, you know, there's a lot of angst and stuff in the record, but, um, if you, if you get into the, the songs, it's really about inside getting inside, you, you know, trying to sort things out in your own head. And I think that's what he was doing, um, outside of the record, like, you know, which informed the record, you know? So I think he was really just trying to reconnect. And I mean, he really did want to, Meet meet up with my mom too. She holds a very special place in his heart. I mean, he's told me that too. And and when he met up with her, it was it was special to see. He had his son with him, and and uh, he spoke to my mom like like it was a oh this is great. We were in Cleveland to see a show. My mom came, and then be, before he played Schism, he announced on the microphone to a, you know Cleveland State arena that uh this song goes out to jolene <laughs> and again the crowd goes crazy yeah like like they know who jolene is but he said this song is about communication and how you don't have to be in physical space space with somebody to know that you have the ability to communicate with one another 
and then he ripped into schism. So is that was, um, you know, that tells you something there that he's stopping the whole show just to, to shout out to my mom. So that was very, that was something special too. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. We should talk about this record. Jay, did you get it when it came out or are you, I, I don't know how big of a tool fan you are. I know you've heard the band and heard the albums, but yeah. Um, do you own any tool records? I own two tool records. I, I got into undertow when it came out. Um, I was, um, pulled in by the unique sound of the band and I listened to that record quite a bit. I ha- also have 10,000 Days, which I guess is a later release. It's the last um, album that they put out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. I did not own this. Um, but certainly I remember, um, you know, a couple of songs being played quite a bit on the radio. I got this when it came out. My roommate in college introduced me to the band with the Opiate EP. And then I got Undertow when that came out. And I got this when this came out and then in addition I, i'm i'm kicking myself for this now i went to the cmj the college music journal festival in new york in fall of 96 and this album was coming out then and there was a if anybody's familiar with what that used to be because it doesn't exist anymore it'd basically be like five or six days in new york city where record labels would present bands to college stations and so you'd have like, you know, Merge Records would do would be at CMJ, would be at CBGBs, and they'd put on five or six, you know, Merge Record ban- bands, and they'd hand out swag, and you can talk to people, and there's a lot of schmoozing and whatnot. And there was a Zoo Entertainment label party that we went to. It was there was one that involved it was just like all White Castle. <laughs> I don't know if it was this one, or not, <laughs> but they just served like tons of White Castle. And then as you were leaving, you got like a swag bag and they, they'd hand you this like, you know, tote bag full of stickers and CDs and stuff. And in there was a vinyl picture disc for the new tool release. Um, it was only a three song, 12 inch, but it was for um, Cesaro, some ability uh, and, anima on the a side and then third eye on the b side um i didn't keep it because i didn't have a record player i didn't own any vinyl records so i gave it to somebody at the radio station i was like i got this at the cmj you can have it it's now like a collector's item worth hundreds of dollars because those things were not you know produced in large quantity so kind of mad that i was generous with my swag bag stuff because I collected so much thing, so many things at the, you know, festival. I was like, oh, I'll just give it to people at the radio station. And most of that stuff was, you know, worth pennies now because it's just CDs that everybody else has. But that one piece of vinyl, I wish I'd hung on to. Um, but I got this record when it came out. And I know we've mentioned before, we were in a band in the early 2000s. Our drummer was a huge Tool fan loved 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 this band i did not follow along with the band in terms of getting all the releases after this he was a huge danny carey fan so you know he was really into the as as a drummer he was influenced by danny carey i remember listening to each of the records that they came out but this is the last one i actually bought um like went to the store bought a cd and then i think for future ones i like borrowed 
our drummers because they only their last album came out 2006 so we were still the band when when their last album came out um and it should be noted that none of this stuff is available streaming that right. uh they have maintained a veil of secrecy and privacy and exclusivity that most bands do not so uh we can get into it with the comments before we actually get into the record but you know some people brought up like gavin and um darren svedson and scott witt and a couple other folks why are you doing this record this is this was sold you know three million copies this was all over mtv it still is i hear stink fist on like the local metal station all the time but you know this is a band that has in in the way of like a 70s band has maintained an air of mystery around them and they're not i don't know how how are you as a kid going to discover tool today Mm. (laughs) you know what i mean you can't stumble across them on spotify on a playlist or they won't be suggested to you um, yeah, this 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 year is um, going to be the year to find out that answer because you know they have an album in the can ready to release, right? So it's a long time coming. So um, this is the first album that they've released since you know the explosion of the record industry. <laughs> so I assume they're still going to do uh, focus on the physical media. Um, it, it'd be interesting to find out if they. I don't know for sure if they're. I haven't looked deeply into it to see if they're going to do anything on the digital realm, but um, we'll find out soon enough, I guess. Yeah. Well, and uh, you definitely, you definitely get a. Um, I guess it's a bit of an experiment. Like you'll be able to see what kind of fans that radio still pulls, right? Because yeah, they've <laughs> they've managed to control the experiment here. The only way you can discover Tool if you hadn't weren't alive in the 90s as if you listen to free commercial radio otherwise i bet they're on sirius too i, mean, I bet the metal station on sirius plays them okay yeah that's, that's but i mean way. you're not gonna like to your point though you're not gonna stumble on them on spotify where you know a lot of music's being discovered or right, pandora right. or apple music or youtube i mean i guess it's on youtube that might be one way um we're not covering here but uh well, they yeah. do have the luxury of having an incredible fan base that's loyal. Uh, so I think they're they're going to make a big splash, uh, regardless of what um, format they come out on. But uh, and then there's the word of mouth. You know, I mean, now kids, you know, look at us. We were buying the records when we were in our twenties or younger, and now we have kids. So we're going to have to, you know, we'll, we'll be playing the music if. You know, our kids are going to hear it and and, and uh, osmosis. <laughs> uh, I will not be playing any tool stuff around my six year old. <laughs> I, I don't want to explain some of the lyrics. <laughs> well, you don't have to get into the 90s stuff. I mean, uh, you know, they've matured as well. Um, a couple other comments I wanted to bring up from the Patreon page. Um, and this is something that came up a couple of times, which was uh, Darren Leach said, first two albums were great by Tool. After that, I lost interest. Even though I saw them on the Lateralist tour, the album was just so long. Anima is a solid album, except for all those unnecessary interludes. They are a metal band if you aren't into metal. thought that was an interesting comment. Mm. Um, 
Christian Christian Wedge, love this album back in the day. Long and big. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this one. Hated 10,000 Days. Interesting. Um, Mike Bond was really into this record at the time. Never kept up with him past this point, but still own the CD and give it a listen every now and then. I'm definitely interested in a discussion-worthy pick. Um, and uh, let's see, Roger said, I was 13 when this came out, and my cousin had the CD and the album artwork, and the song title scared me upon listening to it. I did like the majority of it, but the filler tracks drag it down. What could be a masterpiece? Perhaps that's the point, though. Tool was an aggressive band that didn't want aggressive fans. Same cousin noted above, and I used to joke that you could go to any concert and there would be at least one person in a Tool shirt. I think the band ended up trying to push casual fans in a way in a degree that they became annoying. (laughs) Interesting. Um, And then uh, Tara McCook said, y'all, this selection... Makes me so happy. This is one of my favorite albums, and I definitely call this Tool's high water mark, the triumph of their sound instead of image or mystique. Um, there's some more stuff there. I'm really excited to hear this discussion. A lot to get into musically without getting into the eccentric- eccentricities of Maynard James Keenan and the darker edges and mystique around the band. So a couple of people have mentioned like that this is where they kind of left off with the band, and I kind of feel the same way. Like I said, I checked in with the band, but I definitely went in a much different direction in the 2000s with what I was listening to musically. Something, Some of that had to do with actually being in a band at the time, but also just I got really into, and, and Jay as well, just shorter, tighter, and more succinct songwriting. Um, you know, a lot of that Swedish rock of, you know, three minutes, lots of guitar riffs, upbeat you know that kind of stuff the the a lot of the like british stuff that was happening with like block party and and that like very it wasn't brit pop it was like whatever happened after brit pop in britain but it was definitely like away from the darker and heavier sounds of the 90s it might have been just a reaction to that like i just you know burnt out on that sound i don't know if it was the same thing for you jay but well i mean this band's sound got co-opted a yeah. lot so that's why for me after undertow which i responded to just because it was so unique for the time it quickly became uh really not unique so a lot so many other bands cop this style sound right different aspects of it it just became commonplace so uh i was pretty burned out by the time this record even came out to be honest um i do remember like i said i remember um stink fists um on the radio a lot and was aware of the band but um like i was kind of done with them by this point so anything right. that happened after this was really just more of a curiosity to see like where they would go um just because um so many bands i just dislike were taking the sound and you know right kind of re- reusing it i i definitely play this thing to death like i this is 96 i'm still in college this was a constant companion for at least a year along with, you know, a couple other records. So when, when I went back to revisit this, I, I knew every nook and cranny. I knew all the interludes. I remembered built the bill hits, bill Hicks monologue on third eye, like everything just like fell right into a very familiar rhythm with this record. What I was, 
and we can get into like talking about the actual record, what we liked and stuff. Um, what I found is that I gravitated much more towards the album tracks than the singles, which was probably the opposite of back in college. You know, I was drawn in because of Stink Fist, and then um, 46 and 2 was a single. Now, when I listen to it, it's songs like Eulogy and Anima and some of the other ones that, uh, especially like um, the the rhythm stuff that's going on that I wasn't as tuned into the way our our drummer was. That be, like really shown for me on this revisit probably because i'm just a more tuned in listener from actually from doing the podcast for the last nine years as well i couldn't quite make sense of it not make couldn't make sense of it but i didn't focus on it as much as i do now think what i liked was was that was the things that um on the surface i had become a little tired of um i i i listened a little deeper and particularly the drums you know there's just some incredible drum work on here mm-hmm. um and i think his style very much became you know a, a influential uh, for a lot of different drummers um it's unique incredible technique and, and dynamics i think that's what's um, you know, one of the hallmarks of this band is the soft, quiet thing. They do it in their own way in terms of, you know, using these rhythms and patterns and playing on the different dynamics and then building up intensity and then changing up, you know, either the volume or the instrumentation or even how it's being played. So I definitely responded more to the musicianship than maybe I had previously, uh, particularly the drumming. Um, and there's some some highlights of some bass playing on this as well it, I hadn't really ever noticed before. Mm-hmm. Um, H is a good example of a song that, you know, it's yeah. uh, got, you know, bits and pieces here where you, where you hear some really creative bass playing. And uh, there's a couple other tracks as well that, uh, you know, when you just listen to them as a radio band, you're kind of just focused on the, the vocal and some of the guitar riffs and just the overall feel. Um, so going back and visiting, uh, I'm with you in terms of uh, it was more about the musicianship and the rhythm um, section for me. So Patrick, in revisiting for this podcast, has your the stuff that you have gravitated towards on this record has it changed over the years from when you initially got it and what you connected with back in 1996 versus what you listen to for now? Um, I'm actually in kind of in the same camp as you, Tim. I think um, back in the day, I was big into um, like 46 and 2. And, you know, when I saw him in concert, that was always, that's always a big one for the for the show. And um, I always appreciated Anima. In fact, uh, the song um, kind of defined the band at the t- that time for me. Um, they, you know, it's full of angst and, 
and um, pointed lyrics at you know the state of California, state of Los Angeles, um, basically wishing it would break off and and drown uh, and uh, you know learn to swim, learn to swim is you know the mantra. But at you know it's really a song about again uh, about survival really it's really about you know looking past all the bad stuff so i think back in you know in the younger days the angst really resonated but now as a reflection i see that it's really about like looking at the hypocrisy of certain things in in life and trying to get beyond that and setting your setting your goals uh to get beyond that uh the other one i wanted to that I revisited, which is re- unless you have something to say, you have something to say there. Yeah, I was gonna. I just wanted to talk about that song a little bit. I when I listened to the lyrics, um, I wondered if this was a um, maybe lashing out at some of the more you know, mainstream fan base that they started to take on. I, I don't know. I just heard some things about like the angst um, and and you know sort of dwelling on that and i heard you know some messages about well you know learn to swim like you know life's tough like move on i was interpreting it maybe to be a little bit about that uh, which was a very popular sentiment in in music at the time and went on and probably still continues in the metal some of the new metal stuff um I don't know. Did you guys hear that? I, I was just wondering if that was like a bit of a reaction to maybe some of the new fans that were coming to the band and some of that sentiment around. Uh, like he was telling them to like F off basically. Yeah. Or? Like you remember the late nineties where it was like, I mean, every band was whining about like their personal childhood and how hard it was. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like corn wrote albums about it. Like every band had an album about like, how terrible their parents were and you know, how depressed they were. Right. And it became almost a stereotype. And then you had like, you know, the jocks started to attach themselves with, you know, to some of that. So there became like this commercialization of angst and despair and this, what was, I guess, metal at the time. So as I went back and listened to this, I just couldn't help but think like, were they somewhat responding to that aspect of the scene and probably some of the fans that were coming to the shows and um, kind of connecting themselves to the band? And um, was this a bit of a reaction to that? I don't know if it's as narrow as that, but I, I always got the impression it was just an attack on the, just on phoniness and on like the people who would, if you were just if you're directing it towards fans, people who are fans of the band because the band is popular, not because and they're going to the show as a right. like a fashion statement essentially, as opposed to being like diehard music fans. And that Los Angeles being you know falling into the ocean is just representative of his desire to rid or or his characters, if he's speaking from the you know point of view of a character or whatever, um, desire to rid uh the country metaphorically speaking of a group of people who are fake and and obviously you know using Los Angeles and Hollywood as that metaphor is would be a <laughs> appropriate way to do it so i never read it as a specific thing about 
the the sort of new fans that were along for well, the ride that weren't necessarily you know I think we're kind of kind of saying the same thing whether he's right. talking about his fans or not it's still the same kind of sentiment yeah i think that i agree with both of you i think it's part of you know the bigger concept they have i mean maynard actually started his los angeles career as a comedian you know getting up on stage with comedy acts and so he always wanted to bridge comedy with music and but i think inevitably it became since he's such a creative mind i think inevitably he just allowed that humor or you know jest to be part of how he says things and you know still focused on the bigger picture bigger messages rather than you know having uh something flippant to say that sounds funny but he you know i i remember laughing at you know learn to swim when i first heard i'm like oh that's kind of clever you know you gotta i like that perspective but you know i was also young and i didn't never i didn't grasp the reality of what it would be like if los angeles was wiped off the map you know i mean you can't really he knows that you can't do that you can't do it can't we can't lose detroit you know we can't lose any city it would you know be catastrophic to our whole uh i mean I didn't mean to put Detroit as the lowest <laughs> lowest denominator there, but you can't. I mean, it's it's you know it's reality. So I think being able to um, uh, say all that stuff and and uh, have a broader you know, way of looking at it is exactly what they're aiming for. And you know, getting back to one more thing you said about pointing at their own fans, I think they they loved you know they were notorious for releasing fake information you know leading up to releases but you know that first this album came out how, how many years after Underdoe was three full i think three full years so it was long yeah. time coming and it wasn't like their fan base was getting smaller technically but you know most bands would lose fans after three years you know so i think um they were they were smart and clever but they also had the, you know, a big enough fan base where they probably felt like that was a luxury for them to really, you know, craft uh, a clever way of, of delivering their music without losing their skin. They're going to they're going to, you know, have maybe have a smaller fan base, but they didn't. They had a monster hit on their hands, of course, as it turned out. The other thing, Jay, I, I 
wanted to mention with regards to what I sort of rediscovered with this record that I didn't really consider at the time is how big it sounds for instrumentally as a three piece. I mean, it's guitar, bass, and drums. It's fairly straightforward in terms of, you know, I don't, there's not a ton of like overdubbing that I hear. There's a lot of effects with regards to, you know, there'll be stuff going on with the bass where there'll be like a, you know, effect on the bass or what have you. But it's a really huge sound that they get from what are essentially three players that to me does not sound dated. Like this does not have a stamp to me of mid nineties. I don't know if you agree with me or not on that. I, I do. Yeah. The production's great. Um, in some ways, I guess you could say it's almost like the, that this generation's version of black Sabbath, you know, in terms of it's just, is always going to sound good. Um, it's, it's, um, just produced well enough that, um, you can hear everything clearly. There's not too much, I think other than the vocal effects, there's not too much that timestamps it for the, you know, for the nineties, um, guitar tones and drum wise, it's, it's pretty just unto itself, you know, it's just what their guitars and drums sound like. I think the only thing that dates it is just, again, how many bands have kind of copped this sound. So that's the only thing that kind of dates it back. But yeah, there's nothing sonically or from an engineering standpoint that's subpar or dated. Well, that and the, I think the, the interlude tracks are, are the only thing that make me go, oh yeah, this is a 90s record. Because then you can expand it into a CD length, you know, endeavor. Whereas... You know, if this was yes. a vinyl release, it becomes a double album. Although, if you do take out all the interludes, you're still looking at like an 80-minute record. Uh, not 80 minutes, but uh, plus 60, probably 60 or 70-minute record. Yeah. But some of those interludes, you know, some of the interludes are important to the record um i don't know you know i think useful idiot i think that's the one with just uh the sounds of a record you know mm-hmm. a group a needle on a record um but intermission that had that plays right into jimmy uh might go on a little bit too long but it's only 56 seconds you know if it were it was probably perfect if it were 36 seconds it would, you know it reflecting back on it re- from today's perspective um then you know the eye of von satan that's kind of just a goofball track but i remember putting that on all my mixtapes because it was an awesome interlude that made you stop and and try to listen anyway um but you know third eye is 13 minutes and 47 seconds there's a song that has two i think it has two choruses in it and the first one comes at like nine minutes and the second one's at like 12 minutes or the very end of the song yeah um but um, going back to the three-piece thing you're talking about, the there are a lot of other sounds, though. You know, like, um, I think it's Eulogy, right, where it has that kind of, like, sound in there. It's kind of like a, 
I don't know. Some it sounds like a like a hurdy gurdy or some some weird strange instrument, uh, which I think might be Danny Carey. I'm not even sure who. I makes think it's that. a percussion instrument, or it's like a sample of a percussion instrument that's looped. Right. But it's yeah. yeah. It's and, not. Uh, you know, it's so not you got those. Those you know, that's an example of some of the things that that are just sprinkled throughout the record that are kind of unidentifiable instruments or effects that. Um, you know, take it, it zaps away the thought that this is a three piece, you know, band. Although, you know, like you said, the sound is just huge when they want it to be huge. I guess, um, with regards to the segues or the out, the al- the album, uh, you know, instrumentals and, and you mentioned the, the die Irvine Satan to me, I want to skip them. And when I listen to, say, like a failure record, which has segue tracks, they seem more like genuine segues. Like, I, we're now taking you to the next part of the record, and it is an instrumental, and it acts as a passage on its own. But I don't, like, get tired of it after repeated listens. Like, Yeah, I think that has to do with the, the actual songs that they lead into, too, because a lot of them take a while for them to develop before they hit it you know right so i think you're right like the uh let's see push it is nine minutes and 56 seconds you know right so it, that takes a while to get going but there's a, a there's an interstitial before and after that one. <laughs> so yeah you're right there's the the like the interludes are also part of songs so i guess you're kind of right if you if you kind of pile those all together then uh, but you know that's you know that's the great thing about this band is they can't. It's it's also a lesson in um, patience because it's not like any of that stuff is uninteresting. It really you know I I find all the buildups to be very interesting and us uh, you know like if you if you put push it on even third eye I mean that was one that I remember I think I would always stop the record after Anima back in the day I don't think I even really went to third eye that much um but revisiting the album that's that has a lot of 90s you know you said it doesn't really that that song in particular i think is dated in the 90s um not in a bad way it's just it has so many elements uh that people love about the 90s like the just the scratchy guitars where it actually hurts if you have it at the wrong volume, you know? Um, and you know, the end, you know, the chorus sounds to me like nine inch nails. I mean, like yeah. a dead ringer for nine inch nails. Yeah. So, and you know, being a, uh, icon of the nineties. So that, but yeah, I, I agree with everything you say. There's, there, you know, if, but like I said, if it's, you know, if you can be patient, I think it's, it's one of those that you just you know you, if you like all kinds of music not like maybe going back to that comment you met you mentioned about uh, metal music for people that aren't into metal if you're not if you're into all kinds of music there's you know there's world sounds in here there's not really jazzy elements but there's things that you can you know relate to if you're if you love jazz um, there you know in a lot of these songs lend themselves to jams you know like they can they could you can you can get on one of the rhythms and just ride it and then listen to all the other things going on you know like jam music so it's i think it's encompassing a lot of things and and it's heavy you know we can 
really hit you over the head with their guitars too and bass. Yeah, I, I still think, um, you know, if you took this band to a, to the 70s and forced them to have to deal with the album format, I think you c- cut, obviously, some of the interludes. I, I don't mind if one or two, but... And then, for me, some of these tracks, the second half of the songs are really, really amazing. And the first half, I find it, it it's a bit of a slog to kind of get through to keep your focus so i uh, third eye is a good example of that to me like this the last you cut that half and song in half the second half to me is much better than the first and it'd be okay i think on an album format where you're maybe talking about 40 minutes where you have one or two songs like that where you really go on a journey but when you've got you know 15 songs and i would say 10 of them are like that that's a lot. Yeah. And this band, this band, um, I guess in in um, context now, boy, they make it really hard to get into them. I mean, between finding the music, <laughs> being able to listen to it, <laughs> and then understand between all the interludes and the setup and everything, like, um, you know, the album title uses a character that's you know not in part of the <laughs> Latin. Uh, <laughs> language um you know just about everything you possibly could do to make it difficult to get into this band they they kind of have done um you know the album cover itself is like uh wasn't it like um what do they call that it was like a 3d effect when you tried it so like like baseball cards from the 70s yeah that that special card (laughs) so now when you look at the artwork as like a static graphic it doesn't look as cool as it did on the real thing. So even the artwork, you can't really experience the way you did when you saw I had the physical CD. There's right. just so much about this band that's, uh, they make it, I mean, maybe that's why they maintain mystique, um, after all this, all this time. But, uh, man, it is, if, if you want to get into this band, you did not make it easy. Well, I think the reason why, like all the things you just rattled off about them not making it easy, the reason why they are still compelling is that, they still managed to write for a number of years really good radio singles for like hard rock radio, you know, from sober yeah. to stink fist. There are, I mean, and then I, I'm blanking on from lateralist what, what the single was for that, but Schism. I, yeah, I, I mean, they have basically, if it starts with an S it's, it's going <laughs> to, <laughs> uh, well, they had some, yeah, 
I think they played uh, Ticks and well, maybe they didn't play Ticks and Leeches. Maybe I always wanted them to play that one. That was one of their heaviest songs ever. But I hear like I maybe it's a radio edit for Forty Six and Two. I think they might edit that down a couple minutes because it's like six minutes on the album. I think it might be like a four minute radio edit. But that um, chorus when he when he sings "My Shadow," um, like that that song is so well known that like my wife who is not into metal in any way shape or form knows that song and then we will joke about it like we were walking somewhere with my daughter and she was noticing the shadow was moving in like the parking lot and she said look my shadow and i i said it like as if it was in the song (laughs) and my my wife like sang along too and she doesn't know any tool like but she knew that song because it's constantly played on like you know 99.7 the blitz here in columbus I've heard people refer to the song title as My Shadow on that one. Right. Oh, I love that song, My Shadow. <laughs> That's a huge hook. And it is, you know, on radio. And so, Jay, like you mentioned, you know, Sober is on all the time. I don't I don't know what the actual radio play numbers are, but, I mean, they have to be astounding that they've continued to play those songs. I mean, there's got to be a 99.7 The Blitz in every you know, fairly decent sized market because everybody needs their, you know, it's, it's up against whatever the latest metal stuff is. Plus, you know, it gets thrown along black Sabbath and it gets thrown along Soundgarden, And, um, I guess now it's like Greta van fleet is the, is the new stuff that they're playing. I guess that's how they maintain going, circling back to the beginning. That's where they, how they maintain, sort of a core audience is that it's it's tied into just this continuum of heavy music even if they don't want to be paired along those bands and are are more comfortable with like a king crimson or you know that sort of a range where it's a bit headier but they just happen to write some incredibly catchy singles so well i think you didn't yeah (laughs) uh right um, I think you hit the nail on. Well, I do remember in '96 or '97 when. Um, well, um, I guess I don't even remember what years they were, but when, like, when Jay was saying, all these other bands started Copter Sound and and produced lesser quality versions of Tool. Um, the I remember people talking about you know Tool having a sound, you know, and then there was one mention. I don't know what member of the band if it was Maynard or. Or Adam, but they said, um, "Tool, we don't we don't have any original ideas of our own. We everything that we put on record has come from King Crimson." <laughs> so it's funny you said that, but actually, there's you know, like that song "Eulogy." There's, and I don't know, it's hard to pinpoint like for sure or not because I'm not that well versed in King. I love my King Crimson, but. There, the vocals, the way he sings, ah, yeah, I can't do it. But when he uh, hits all those different notes in in one word, um, is totally either stolen from King Crimson or King Crimson has stolen it back from stolen that thing back from them. Because even in the latter years of King Crimson music, you'll hear that same kind of way that the vocal goes around a, a note. And comes back and hits something that you don't, you know, he goes around the note and it hits something that you're not sure is right. And then he hits something else, you know, 
and uh, th- that eulogy, I think, is the best example on this record about of that. But yeah, King Crimson is a great I- example because they they have a lot of albums where they'll have like a, a one and a half minute song and then an eleven and a half minute song right after that too, just like this record does. This would be a good time to like give our overall thoughts on this record. Of does it work as a full record for you still, Jay? Um, no, I mean, I, I'm more at an EP, I guess. Um, although I think if you added up the, the amount of time, it's probably a full record. Um, I like eulogy. I like H I like 46 and two. I like hooker with a penis, even though I don't like the title and anima. Um, third eye is okay. The second half, I don't really like the interludes, but the only interlude I would keep would be intermission. Um, cause I, I could hear that at like, you know, the beginning of side two of a record. That would be a cool way to start it. It's thematically tied to the next song. Um, so you're at an album. It, that's an album. What you just did there, like seven songs, is it is a seventies album? I know. For, yeah. He only cut out Stink Fist and Push It uh, for the songs themselves. Right. Right. So I mean, from a yeah, from an account standpoint, you're closer to an EP, but from a time um standpoint i think it's an album so um yeah i mean i'll i guess i'll go with an album just for me i I would be skipping you know a lot uh every other song almost um i I did want to ask though uh didn't you say did you say his name was jimmy is the song jimmy about himself like about his childhood or something yeah and and so when you were reading those comments about some people that you know stopped on this record didn't didn't like what came after it um jimmy is uh i guess this the best way i can describe it is my experience with listening to tool music it really isn't any i don't think it's anything much different than most other tool fans or or listeners but i know certain things to be true you know and you know there's a lot of um, you know, discussion. That's another thing that keeps this band alive is the discussion about what they're saying and all these songs and what they mean and why. And if somebody's right and somebody's wrong, and and everybody gets called out for saying something that might be wrong. But the song Jimmy is literally about when his uh, mother having an aneurysm and being dis. He, you know, at that point, his parents were divorced. His dad lived in in Michigan, so I knew him at this time. I knew the moment of what he's singing about in the song, where he's sitting in the car driving away from home, and that's what he's. You know, those are the lyrics. So, to that, you know, those are the only moments that I think that are truly different for me because I know that you know a lot. Most people that do get into this stuff believe what they read and they believe. They put, you know, they're putting all these facts together, facts around quotes, and then deciding what is actually true and what isn't. But there are certain things that when I hear it that I know that it's true. So that song is totally about him and looking back on himself at the age of 11 and knowing that that person basically is frozen in time that, you know, before his mom had her aneurysm and then after his mom had his, her aneurysm so that's a truly introspective personal song of him mm-hmm. 
Now, taking that a bit further, if you go into the next couple albums, he carries that theme about his mom in many more recordings going forward. A perfect circle and tool, but especially on Wings for Mary, uh, Wings for Marie, which is her mom, his mom's middle name on 10,000 Days. That's just basically a continuation of her story. And um, 10,000 Days, the title of that album is, I believe, and I'm, I'm sure somebody's going to correct me on this or not, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but 10,000 Days are the number of, approximate number of days that his mom lived after her brain aneurysm. So the whole, you know, everything that he writes is, is um, there's meaning to it. So certain things that I know that are true because of my experience do stand out. And Jimmy is certainly, that's probably, Anima and Jimmy are my two favorite songs on the record. And, you know, you can actually hear his sadness in Jimmy, you know, if you, if you listen to it from that perspective. So, yeah, that's him, Jimmy. And Judith, which is a Perfect Circles single on their second album, that's his mom's name. So, remember that? Wow. Very cool. I guess when you listen to a, you know, I don't know if it's the same for everybody, but I don't always associate a band that's this heavy as writing songs that that's that personal. You know, I always think of like Metallica writing, you know, anti-government culture, whatever, you know, those types of songs. But it's interesting when a band... Uh, tackles a much more personal uh, subject matter because traditionally, yeah, I, for sure. you know, I don't think of like that style of music as lending itself to that, but that just might be my own bias. Well, well, I mean, they, I guess you could say they probably started that trend. I mean, a lot of bands certainly followed that. So yeah, but before it, yeah, I think you, you know, Iron Maiden sang about history, like most of their those. Um, those lyrics are about historical references. So, right. Uh, same thing for S- Sabbath and Jesus priests. And a lot of it is about looking back and using history as a metaphor. So yeah, they were definitely, um, one of the bands that made it more personal. Patrick, were the album for you? Yeah. Um, I, I like listening to it all the way through, but I'm, I'm actually an album listener, too. I know this um, this podcast is about listening to albums, but ultimately, you know, when it comes down to it, you guys are uh, chopping the albums up and um, not to the detriment of anything, but that's the nature of what we do as humans and what you guys do as a show. But um, I think, you know, some things are inseparable, and I think you guys under you guys just assume that everybody knows that too but i'm just saying it out loud because that's what i do but i do like albums um in their entirety and uh this one is one where you i almost always do that listen to it in its entirety um of course it's great to just pop on one of the songs but i think you know with how much i've ingested you know digested um, of this band I don't think I'd do that as much as I would like just uh, let the album be for a while and then come back to it and, and revisit it and listen to it all the way through or at least put it on and, you know, put the CD in 
your car and uh, drive down, you know, drive to work every day and listen to a few songs each day or whatever, you know. I so, uh, <clears throat> I forgot to mention another thing that uh, I came across trying to get back into this band for this for this episode. Um, so I pulled out my Undertow CD, which I had never ripped. That was sitting in my uh, CD collection. There are um, fifty blank tracks between <laughs> the last track and the bonus track. I think it's sixty, go, isn't it? Is it sixty? <laughs> I had to go individually go through and deselect every one so they wouldn't rip to my iTunes. Because <laughs> so. Disgustipated is uh, track sixty nine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So right. even like ripping it, I'm like, oh, I got the CD. That that's cool. I can, nice. and I start to go rip. I was like, nope, I got to deselect 60 tracks in order to get this into my iTunes. The 90s are <laughs> <laughs> represented well. Awesome. Oh, Tool got me again. But you know, back then it was like, you know, hey, it was a talking point. You know, hey, you know, there's a song way at the end. You know, I, you know, do you remember they used to put some songs like before the first track? Like oh, if yeah. you put the CD in. You couldn't hear it unless right. you rewound, <laughs> which, yep. uh, you know, so it was a talking point. It was, you know, back then it was fun. Now it's just like, oh, man, that's right. Now I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I would call this a worthy album, but I would the, the ones that don't that I don't care for. I don't mind all or some of the interlude tracks, but I would drop. Number six message to Harry Manback. I would drop uh, ten Dyer von Satan. Um, I would dump twelve Cesaro, some ability. Um, I would dump fourteen Ions. So that's four right there. So now we're an eleven track album, and shorten up Third Eye. That's that's all I would do. And I know it makes it a much more traditional album, and it's not what they intended but just for my repeated listening enjoyment that's how i would keep it in my itunes playlist from the album that i ripped from my cd um going forward so but i i don't have a problem with any single song on this record other than third eye being a little long and you know there's maybe like push it or um I'm with you. Other, I'm exactly just, with you. Just has a little bit too long of an intro, but that's about it. I, I don't, yeah. The rest of the record works great for me, even after all this time and not really listening to as much heavy music as I used to in the '90s. You know, I swing back and forth with certain bands or what have you. But there you go, Patrick. Thank you for uh, sharing your stories with us and, and bringing this album to us. This was fun to revisit because this is such an important part of the '90s that it needed to be a part of our discussion. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate, uh, everything you guys do. It's, it's really, um, it's a, it's a great show. It's not, it's not just great. It's kind of special because it, it makes people think about the songs and the music, uh, in different ways. And I, and I personally really appreciate that. This album was obviously important. Um, to me, it's important if you look at any review of the 90s. I mean, it's you know pretty much uh, in the top. You know, it's always on on one of the lists, if not near the top. So it's it's it is something special. But you know, the mystique, like you said at the beginning of the show, it really makes it something different. It's not just you know 
um, the Alanis Morissette record that came out in 95 that sold 50 million albums. This is something a little bit different. It comes from a different angle, and um, I'm glad to have uh, been the one to bring it to you for the show. Do something creative every day. Well, we appreciate it. We appreciate being part of the uh, Patreon community that uh, helps keep the engine running at uh, at Dig Me Out. And uh, I want to remind everyone, it's patreon.com forward slash dig me out. That's where you join the union. And also iTunes is where you can leave uh, positive feedback if you enjoy this episode. If we got any tool minutia trivia wrong, please um, send an email to tool trivia <laughs> at digmeout.com and we will address your your issues it's not a real email address sorry <laughs> all right well this has been a supersized episode thanks everybody for listening and uh for jay um tim and we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out thanks for listening to support the podcast Visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Yeah.